Welcome to Woolful, a podcast for fiber folk. I'm excited to share with you some incredible people I've had the opportunity to talk to in this community we love so much. From shearers and shepherds to knitters and shop owners, here's where you get to listen to a little part of their fiber journey. This week's episode is sponsored by StashBot. Buy yarn smarter with Hannah Fedig's new iOS app, StashBot. If you find a yarn you can't live without, StashBot will help you determine how much you should buy. It will pay for itself again and again as it saves you from purchasing more skeins of yarn than you need. Just as importantly, it will keep your stash useful as you'll be able to have enough yarn to knit the products you'd like. StashBot will soon be available for Android and is also available in print. For more information, head to knitbot.com stashbot. Today we get to meet two women who I've come to greatly admire, each from opposite sides of the world, Felicia Semple of The Craft Sessions and Karen Templer of Fringe Association. Karen joins us to share her journey from designer to proprietress and her passion for handmade wardrobe made of things created with intention. You can find her at both fringeassociation.com and on fringesupplyco.com, as well as on Instagram at Karen Templer and Fringe Supply Co. And with that, here's Karen. I would be surprised if anyone didn't know about Fringe um, in this fiber community, but as we follow your day-to-day fiber journey, it'd be fun to hear a little bit about how you kind of got started on this. I would say that I was raised to be a maker, basically. Like my, I grew up in the suburbs. My dad was a banker and my mom stayed home and raised us, and, but they both grew up on the farm. And so, you know, my mom grew up having been taught everything a girl needs to know, you know, from sewing her own clothes to making jam to whatever, you know. And so she, that's how she raised us. You know, she taught us how to do everything and to be capable. And so, you know, whether it was like going to the U-Pick and getting bags full of peaches and going home and making jam out of it, or, you know, she used to like set me down and say like, Karen, this blanket needs whip stitched. And I wouldn't know what that was. And she would show me how to do it. And then I would sit there and do it. And at first it was always like, you know, oh God, a chore, you know, (laughs) but she kind of would always give me stuff to do that she knew I would take to. So, you know, as a kid, I knew at least a little bit about how to do most things. And I like, I knew the basics of knitting. Um, I had been shown how to cast on, and you know, knit the knit stitch. And I had some, I remember them, they're like avocado green, aluminum needles, you know, and some, (laughs) I don't know, brown acrylic yarn or something, but I just didn't take to it. I really liked making granny squares. I liked crochet much better. And I don't know if it was like just, you know, easier for a kid to work a hook than to need two slippery aluminum needles or what, but I just didn't really take to it. But, you know, I sewed a lot and I did crochet and I do like <laughs> get into all the like, you know, big craft store trends like rug hooking and whatever, but those latch hook rugs. But anyway, and then I didn't, I didn't do anything like that for a long time. And like, I went to art school and I've joked about this on the blog, but I went to art school and I was obsessed with all the other departments. I was a graphic design major, but I was like obsessed with the pottery studio and the industrial designers, like all the stuff that they would be doing in the wood shop or, you know, these crazy fabrications that they would do, you know, even the painters and the printmakers and like everything else was so interesting to me, except for the fiber artists. For some reason, that seemed really like cheesy 70s thing to me. And so I like never even went on their floor. I didn't pay any attention at all. And I didn't have anything to do with fiber for a really long time. And then I got my design degree and I you know, originally that was an art job. And when I was in school, it was still computers were just starting to factor into it. But it was still very much a hands on, you know, you were working with waxers and T squares and exacto knives and 
all of that stuff. And then within a couple of years of graduating, it, it got, it turned into where it was just a 100% computer job. And then I got involved in the internet and very early on and worked on the web for a really long time, both in design and in tech. And, you know, just wasn't making anything tangible for a really long time. And then in 2011, I was in Nashville actually visiting with friends. They are avid knitters. They're um, a mother and daughter named Meg and Joe. Meg is the daughter and Joe is the mother. And they're just, you know, obsessive knitters. So I came to visit and Joe was sitting on her deck like she always is knitting. And, and she had Joelle Hoverson's book, More Last Minute Knitted Gifts, sitting mm-hmm. next to her. And I picked it up and started flipping through it. And there were like 12 things in there that I just desperately wanted. I was like, okay, this is like, this is the year I'm going to learn to knit. I swear to God, I'm going to learn to knit this year. And I had, <laughs> I had actually been gardening. That had been the one thing that was sort of like my creative outlet from, from my computer job for a while. And then I had just, we had moved and I didn't have a garden anymore. And so I was flipping through that book and I mean, I'll never forget it. Like which ones of those things I was like, I have got to know how to make this. And so Joe looked at me and she said, little Meg can teach you to knit in 20 minutes when she gets home from work. And so when Meg came home, you know, came home that night, she we flipped through the book and she was like, which things do you like? And she just kind of picked out like what I could make was that elf hat. That's I think actually on the cover, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And she went upstairs in her stash and got some yarn and needles and came back down and showed me how to cast on. And my fingers actually remembered how to do that, which I thought was interesting. Like once she started showing me, I was like, Oh yeah, I kind of remember this, you know, muscle memory. And so she just, while we were driving around Nashville the next day, I was sitting in the back of the car and she was just like telling me what to do in the pattern next, you know? So she was sort of tracking my progress in the pattern and telling me what to do. And by the end of the day, I had made a hat and I was like, this is awesome. You know, I made something with my hands. It was just so, you know, such a revelation after working in tech for so long. And, but then, you know, we were going on a road trip the next day and she gave me some yarn and some needles to take and just told me to make a, you know, garter square scarf. And I just, you know, the four days we were on that road trip, I just never touched it. That just sounded like the most boring thing in the world to me. And so I thought, I don't know, maybe I don't like knitting, you know, maybe it's boring or something. And then she works at House of Yarn here in Nashville. And so we went to see her at the store before we got on the plane the last day. And I was just looking around the store and saying, what can I make? You know, what's like, I was looking for something that I was excited to make and that I had, you know, that she could tell me what to do and put me on a plane and I would be okay. So she taught me how to purl and picked out this cowl that was just a big strip of bias knit fabric, which turned out to be a really good project because it was KFB at the front and then knit two together at the back. So it would just make a little bias strip and then it was kitchener together at the end. So that was like a few really interesting skills to learn right there, right? Mm-hmm. I had to keep track of my stitches. Like, did I accidentally increase and not decrease or whatever, you know? So I was doing that on the plane and I, by the time I got home and by the time I kitchenered that together, I won't, I'll never forget that. I was sitting at my desk in the kitchen and I was, <laughs> I was doing it. And Meg had told me, she like, she gave me the directions and she said, okay, now when it's time to do this, you're going to go in the bathroom because she knew that was the only room in our loft with the door. And she's like, go in the bathroom, tell, pour a glass of wine, tell Bob he's not allowed to talk to you through the door and you're just going to go in there and concentrate and do this. <laughs> and I didn't do that, but I did sit down at my desk and I did tell Bob not to talk to me. And I sat there and I did it and I was blown away. You know, I was like, Bob, look what I'm doing. I'm like, it's sorcery. Can you believe this is happening? You know, and it was just so magical to me the way that it just was this completely invisible thing. And then I suddenly had this loop of fabric Mm -hmm. and I was just hooked. And so I got really, you know, quickly obsessed and wanted to know everything really quickly and wanted to be good at it. And so I just, you know, every night I would make something and just 
you know, I just really, <laughs> it's funny that I didn't really take to it as a kid because boy, I sure did as a grown up. Mm -hmm. I hear that a lot in the podcast. A few people have had similar paths, I guess, where it was introduced to them as a child and then they picked it up later on in life. I've been trying myself to figure out where that comes from. Because yeah. the same for me, I had been in, I had been taught by an aunt when I was quite young and then just never, could never get through projects. And obviously the guest blog post for your blog I kind of shared a little bit about that. And yeah. and then it was like, it, it's funny because the first thing I knit was my friend had the last minute knitted gifts book and there was a, a flower washcloth pattern in there. And she made a copy of the pattern for me and was like, okay, if you can, if you can finish this, I'll help you get some more yarn or whatever it was. Yeah. I think I was like 19 or something and I finished it. And then I kind of just never really picked it up again until my niece was born baby knitting did it for you the small projects it was like yeah. that instant satisfaction of you yeah. know small things that's how it was for me too at first I bought what I thought would be a good idea because I'm a very methodical person and so like I wanted to know how stitch patterns worked and stuff so that day at House of Yarn I was like what if I made washcloths you know like I picked out this washcloth book that had all these different stitch patterns in it and I thought those small squares would make sense as a way to like practice these different things and so I bought some cotton yarn in that book and I just had no interest in making them. Mm -hmm. But I just, but then I saw a picture online of this cowl that was more like a neck warmer, you know, like back mm -hmm. then it was, we were making more like these short, shorter, smaller, almost like I used to always worry about some of them looking like neck braces, you know, <laughs> like you'd had an accident, but it was that sort of scale that I was doing them out of super bulky yarn. And so I would just, you know, sit down and do a different stitch pattern literally every night. And I would finish one in two hours, you know. And so I had a new cowl. And in San Francisco, where I was living at the time, the wind, you know, is so wicked. Mm -hmm. And so they were like super useful. And I could whip them out in a night and I had learned something new. And I was doing them without a pattern. I was just kind of figuring out what my stitch count could be and stuff, you know. And I was just, I was so blown away by the instant gratification of doing that every night. And now it's funny because I just finished knitting a sweater that took me four months and I didn't do anything else <laughs> for those mm -hmm. four months. And I'm like, I used to finish things in a sitting and now it takes me three, you know, a third of a year. Mm -hmm. Kind of shared a little bit about how you reintroduced to fiber and knitting and, and how it kind of took off for you as like a personal endeavor. But how did it evolve over the last few years to bring you where you're at today? I think it really has changed a lot. I was thinking about this recently that really... When I started the blog, when I started Fringe Association, it was, um, I always described it as a style blog for knitters because it bothered me that there wasn't really anything like that that I could find. It was really like a, you know, daily destination that was really about like, you know, who's doing cool things and what's, you know, what's remarkable out there and worth knowing about. It still is that clearly, like, obviously that's what I mainly do with the blog. But for myself personally, it's become less about, I mean, knitting still for me is about learning something new all the time. Like I always... When I love knitting most is when I'm doing something I've never done before. And thankfully, there's a bottomless well of things in knitting to, to do, to learn that are new all the time. So it's still that, but it's more like, whereas in the beginning, it was really that and really about getting that satisfaction and cranking things out and learning things. Now it's become for me much more about making my own clothes. It really is about like not buying factory made clothes. And from a, you know, sort of consciousness perspective, and also because I want to make the things that I want in my closet and not be subject to what's available in stores. So for me now, it's really much more about, I've gotten much better about picking projects that I 
picking patterns that I want to wear that are more in line with how I actually dress. Whereas in the beginning it was more, I would get pick. I think this is true for a lot of people where I was like picking things to make both in terms of what they were and the yarn that I was knitting them in that were really not me. And for, I don't know what attracted me to them necessarily, but I'm doing a much better job of taking my time picking projects and sort of shopping for them in the way that I shop for clothes, which is I have very strict rules for myself about like, <laughs> like I read this thing once in a fashion magazine when I was like 16 or something that said, you should never buy anything unless in your head you can mentally make three outfits out of it that you love with mm-hmm. things that are already in your closet. And like, that's the thing I was definitely not doing, you know, I would make a sweater and have no idea how it would fit into my actual wardrobe, you know? Mm -hmm. So I feel like I'm getting much better about that. And I'm obviously a much better knitter than I was three years ago when I learned. And so, yeah, it's become much more about this sort of personal thing of, of filling in. And I also went through this whole thing about a year ago where I started cleaning out my closet just because it had gotten out of control. And trying to be really thoughtful about what went back in. And I found that I just really didn't want to put store-bought things back in there. Like something had mm-hmm. shifted in me. And mm-hmm. so it's a combination of, you know, the, the, the factory situations and the, you know, not really knowing who's making your clothes and what, under what kind of conditions and all of that. But also just, you know, more and more it's impossible to find things in stores that are even natural fibers. You know, like everything mm-hmm. now is polyester and acrylic. And so... I just have really lost my taste for store-bought clothes. So now I'm like obsessively knitting sweaters instead of two-hour cowls. It's funny that as you're kind of saying this, because I've had kind of a similar, I don't know, thought process. And I think it shifted for me when we first moved to San Francisco and my closet was very much towards like Pacific Northwest (laughs) climate. Uh, And then I kind of had to reevaluate, like, I really don't need these really heavy Angora sweaters or cashmere sweaters that I spent way too much money on. (laughs) And I was disappointed in myself. I guess my closet represented where I was at in my career in terms of kind of the persona that I had to kind of give off, you know, working in a corporate design environment, but then also just, you know, I, I guess ignorance really for me, at, that's how it was. And I remember I started completely separating my closet and one whole side was the stuff I wanted to get rid of or sell and the other stuff I wanted to keep. And it was like a 20, 80%, like 80% I wanted to get rid of. And yeah. David was like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, this is crazy. And so last year I'd made a challenge for myself to only buy organic clothing mm-hmm. I did really well. I think I only bought like two things that weren't organic. They were like handmade, but not organic. And it was crazy because I only bought like 10 things total for that whole year. And yeah. and I love, love the things that I bought yeah. a lot. But it's that thoughtfulness that I think then translates into our lives as makers. And it sounds like that's how it was for you. Yeah, I just only want to have stuff that's that I really care. You know, like I was a total mall rat as a kid in the 80s and stuff, you know, and for so many years I just would amass clothes. And now I just, I only want to have things that I really love and that I think are going to last and that I'm, you know, I'm making an investment in. Mm-hmm. Whether that's I made it or I, I have a couple things that I basically hired a friend of mine, Alyssa Minadio, who's an amazing sewer. You know, she made me a dress on this top that I wear all the time that I just, I love those pieces so much because they're beautifully made and you know they're exactly what I wanted to my specifications but also that Alyssa made them for me you know that it's Mm -hmm. it was a collaboration with her and that she you know that they're handmade and they're made with care and with great detail and so once you have some things like that in your closet it just it gets harder to walk into a store and look at 
poorly made overpriced stuff and be like, why am I going to pay that? You know, why, why mm-hmm. would I, it's not going to last and I don't love it. You know, I don't have any attachment to it at all. It's just some random thing. You were saying the other thing is, you know, you go through life changes and, you know, for me, I was already like, the reason that I started cleaning up my wardrobe was similar. Like I had stopped working full-time jobs, especially tech jobs, which is, you know, it's a sort of a specific vibe, you know, and pressure to you dress how you dress. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I had quit to work on French full-time. And so I was working, we lived at the time in a loft that was over a big ground floor studio with a separate entrance. And so the front half of that was, was fringe. And, you know, so my commute was my, the 18 steps between the residence and the commercial space. And those clothes made no sense in my life at all anymore whatsoever. I was working in this drafty, you know, <laughs> this drafty studio space doing order fulfillment and stuff, not sitting in meetings at a tech company. So mm-hmm. you sort of reevaluate and you start asking yourself, like, what, what do I really want? What makes sense for my lifestyle? Mm-hmm. That all sort of coincided with starting that closet clean out and then deciding to move to Nashville, which is a completely different climate and a completely different vibe, like a totally different scene, you know? And so, yeah, you just start looking at stuff and you're like, this, these clothes don't make sense anymore. So we first met at the little get together that you had at your studio that one day. But since then, you've been on quite the journey. And, you know, you made this huge decision to move across the country to Nashville. And, and what kind of led you there? In part, I mean, I guess maybe that's more incidental, but we felt like we needed to leave San Francisco. We'd been there for almost 20 years. And as you know, it's an incredibly expensive place to live. We're both very far away from our families. And we just felt like we we weren't going to stay there forever. Like we couldn't afford to retire there. We couldn't afford for Bob to to leave his corporate job there, which we both wanted him to do. And just felt really far away. I at least I think I did more than even more than Bob. So we just started talking about, you know, where we could go. It was sort of geographic and sort of economic and sort of like what's the culture of you know looking at places where the culture made sense to us so we felt like we would you know fit in there and find what we would were looking for there and Nashville is you know someplace we had visited several times it's centrally located between our families um it's a cool town it's you know it's always had its thing which was always music but lately it's been the last few years it's been really developing its own maker culture which the more that I looked at it the more I realized it was really impressive and it I loved that it was more you know the more I dug into like you know I would be like following brands on Instagram or people on Instagram and I would you know pay attention to who they were following and who they were giving giving shout outs to and just really looking around and seeing what was going on in town that way and the closer I looked the more impressed I was with with this whole maker culture and this whole just very authentic um there's kind of an interesting sort of like like national is in some ways very much a small town but also, you know, there's Sephora, like, you know, mm-hmm. it sort of has both aspects going on. What really attracted me and really kind of sealed the deal for us was not only that the restaurants have gotten really good in the last few years as compared to the past and to some other towns we were considering, but just that whole maker community and, and that everybody seemed very close knit and that a lot of it was surprisingly fiber conscious. There are several like small fashion brands and there's there's a really amazing weaver named Allison Bullock Shelton who's um, Shutter Shuttles on Instagram. I don't know if you know her. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. just does the most remarkable work, um, just amazing, and does really great collaborations with some of the other fashion brands here who will make, you know, she'll sort of like sort of commission her to, to weave fabric for them to suit a specific idea that they have for a garment or whatever. And, you know, so I just was seeing all of this collaboration and all this creativity, and that just really appealed to me. And so, and also just made me think that, you know, we would be okay here. 
you know, like if I could get a good taco and there were people who had some common interests, we would be okay. So, well, it sounds like everyone over there has been really excited to have you in their community. Well, everyone over here is sad that you <laughs> it sounds like it's been maybe challenging at first. I know that you were trying to get your own Very. place and all that kind of stuff, but now you're kind of settling in. Yeah, so. it's, yeah, we're getting there. We had a lot of roadblocks thrown up that were unexpected and kind of a lot, but we're starting to feel like we're getting to know the place and we feel good about it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not like a regular daily blog reader and I kind of forget, (laughs) oh, there's other things I can read other than like random searching. I I like how it's not just about fashion, but there's a lot of instructional or like relatable anecdotes and I don't know, it makes it more relatable. My here's what I screwed up this week post. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love it. I mean, we're all learning from your mistakes. So, well, I hope somebody is. Yeah. I don't seem to learn from them. But yeah, I mean, when I when I first started knitting, it was so helpful to me. I would run into especially a few people in uh, Ravelry who were very open about, you know, what they had done, why they, you know, the decisions that they made and also just their decision-making process. And so it got me to understand that there's there are so many possibilities that aren't obvious to you if you just, you know, follow a pattern, which there's, and I don't mean to suggest there's anything wrong with following a pattern. I wish that I were better at just doing that. But just like, I remember, do you follow Gussie on Ravelry? I don't think so. I don't really know much about her other than that she's an amazing knitter. And she, like one time I went very early on, I was looking at this sweater she had made and reading her notes about it on Ravelry. And she was saying that she... I think it was it was like a sweater coat and I think it was just written for a bulky yarn and she was, you know, writing this these notes about like I didn't want it to be heavy or drapey and so um she wound up picking like three different yarns to hold together that gave her these different characteristics that made this very lightweight fabric with this nice halo. And I just remember reading that and thinking, You can do that? You know, like <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like, wow, like you can be your own blender, you know, you can make your own, you look, you can not only substitute yarns, which I would, like, that seemed obvious to me, but to really think about like, what, what are the traits of the fibers and that you could get those traits from multiple yarns held together and stuff like that. And just, I would run into people who would like improvise the sweater and they would be writing about like, you know, how they came up with their cable motifs, you know, what you have to look out for when you're doing that and stuff. And I would just be mm-hmm. a glom onto those those people in those posts because there was so much great information there even though at the time it didn't make any sense to me because I didn't know what they were talking about and they were so beyond what I could ever even imagine doing but you know with with anything new if you just read stuff like that and it doesn't make sense you know it's like if you're learning to cook or something and you're starting to pay attention to cooking shows or something you, you once you start hearing the same things over and over or somebody will say something that sort of harks back to something you heard somebody else say and you start putting two and two together and it just you know, even if something seems beyond you at the time you're reading it, you are learning or you are putting away something that's going to make sense eventually. And so mm-hmm. that stuff was so incredibly important to me as a new knitter, the people who would share that kind of information and share their mistakes and share how they fixed it or share their decision-making process, that I just try to do that because I remember how much it meant to me. And I hope that if mm-hmm. I can say anything that's helpful to anybody else that you know causes a light bulb to go on over anyone's head. I'm perfectly Mm -hmm. willing to say, like, I made this mistake or I um, had this idea or whatever the case may be in the interest of just giving, paying forward that kind of information sharing and inspiration. Yeah, that's awesome. I need to take better notes as I work on projects because 
I definitely make mistakes and there's times where I'll have to go back and redo something. But especially now that I'm working on multiple projects at a time, I just forget <laughs> Like yeah. when I go back and I'm really bad at leaving notes yeah. on my Ravelry projects because I, I just don't remember, you know, yeah. and sometimes if I have to exchange needles, you know, from one project yeah. to another project you forget what you're using. and yeah, and I, and I'll forget even the stitch pattern or whatever it is. And, yeah. but I'm, I'm getting better at it, but I, I should take better notes. I think I'm getting worse at it. I used to keep a notebook and really write down everything. Cause I was also jumping around between projects a lot more than I do now. I think I'm a little more, mm -hmm. a little more monogamous now than I used to be, but you just never know when you're going to get interrupted or, you know, lose interest in something or Brooklyn Tweed's going to put out a new collection and you're going to have yeah. have to cast on something instantly <laughs> I know. and, you know, drop what you were doing. And then, and you think you're going to remember, you always think, oh, I know what I'm doing. You know, I'll know when I come back or you don't even think about it because you just kind of don't even think about the fact that you're abandoning one to start another. So if right. you don't have those notes, yeah. So that's also part of why I've, I've started like putting whatever notes I can in the knitting itself, as far as like, I'm using stitch markers to mark increases and stuff like that so that mm -hmm. if I haven't actually, you know, made check boxes to check off or something like that, which I used to do, I can still count and see, you know, where, where was I? And also just, I can read my knitting now on a level that I didn't used to be able to. So now, you know, like it used to be if I was working from a chart and I put it down, like what if I forgot to move my marker of where I was in the chart? Like now I think, mm -hmm. well, why, why would that matter? Like just look at the knitting and look, you know, so you just get, you know, the more you knit and the more you do and the more you challenge yourself and the more mistakes you make, which means you're learning. Those are learning opportunities. It means you're trying something new and learning how to fix something is every bit as important as learning how to do it in the first place. So you know, the more you do, the more you understand your knitting, the easier it is to see what you did or know what you did. So I think, I think I don't take as, as many notes as I used to, but I think I'm also better at not needing them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's funny how some things can seem so intimidating or even uninteresting to you. But then as when you get gumption and you take something on or uh, you you have the courage to fix something, how later on you look back and it just seems like so, I, I wouldn't say easy, but it just is like, yeah, yeah, yeah I can do that now, you know? <laughs> yeah. And whereas before you're like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so. That's the thing about knitting. Nothing is hard, you know? Like th things are new. There are things you haven't done yet, but nothing is hard. <laughs> you know, all you're doing is wrapping yarn around needles and you're just wrapping it different directions or you're sticking your to tip your needle through two strands instead of one or two loops instead of one or whatever, you know, it's not like nothing is actually <laughs> that challenging. It's really, I think more about learning to manage a knitting project, the more complicated a project is learning to manage where you are in it. And, you know, your understanding of what you've done and all that than it is that anything's actually physically or technically or logistically difficult. Right. I, l I like how you just said that. Cause I, as you're talking, I'm thinking, no, there's definitely some things I've thought of hard. But then what you just said, that learning to manage the project, it's totally true. And I often say the only difference between me and you is the fact that I'm doing it and you're not doing it. And I've said that a lot in a lot of different ways or about a lot of different things to people who have maybe said, oh, I could never do that or oh, I could never do that. And it's like, yeah, you can. Like, if I can do it, you can do it too. Yeah. I like how you just put that because that kind of sums it up better. I hear from so many people all the time about, I can't do this, or I don't know how to do that, or whatever. And I'm like, you you can, and you do know how. You just haven't done it yet. Like, you have all the skills. People will say to me all the time, I could never make a sweater. And I'm like, there are no new skills mm -hmm. you've done. Like, I'll look at what mm -hmm. they've done, and I'll be like, you've done everything that you need to know 
to make a sweater. The only, it's just more knitting. It's just more, maybe it's more stitches. It depends. Like if you make fingering weight socks, might actually Mm -hmm. be more stitches than a bulky (laughs) sweater, you know? (laughs) It's totally true. You know? It's totally true. But people just get this mindset about, oh, I haven't done that. I don't know how, you know? But you you do. Or if you don't, it's there's such easy skills to pick up and there's so many resources with the internet. I could never be where I am as a knitter after three years without the internet and the ability to just look mm-hmm. up anything I need to know and watch somebody else literally do it in a video or whatever. It's true. I feel like the garment construction was something that always kind of intimidated me a little bit because I'm, I'm really tall and I always struggled with like length of sweaters and the body and the sleeves and so that it fit right and I remember that was one of the reasons I was so intimidated to start on my first sweater but then I kind of was like you know what whatever I know people that can help me out (laughs) once I get started yeah so but then it went well yeah you figure it out when it comes to yarn how has your specific fiber journey been from what you kind of started and gravitated towards to what you kind of gravitate towards now? I feel like I hear the same things from a lot of people. I think this might be a fairly common experience, but I started out knitting with a lot of like gushy single ply merinos. And I think it was because they're, you know, they're prominent in the stores and I don't ask a lot of questions. I think I kind of like would blow into yarn stores and just like pick out colors I wanted or stuff that felt soft or whatever and just buy it and go home and work with it. And not, I think if I had asked anybody, hopefully they would have guided me toward yarns that were more, um, had a little more tooth to them, a little more texture and fibriness to them. Because those yarns, I think, are actually the wrong yarns to knit with when you're a beginner. And I didn't realize it for a long time. Like, I think until I got my first gain of Brooklyn Tweed and I understand what the term sticky yarn meant. I had heard that, but I didn't really get it. And I didn't understand the value of it, as especially as a new knitter. You know, I would make mistakes or I would be like, I was so scared to, to rip things back. Or it took me a while before I actually took a fixing mistakes class and learned how to properly repair things. I would always just, if I made a mistake, I would rip it out and start over. And part of it I realized later on was that that yarn was so slippery that I was using that I was making things harder on myself than it needed to be. I think if you're a more comfortable knitter and more comfortable like understanding what your stitches are doing and how to manipulate them to make fixes and stuff, that that's not such an issue. But I think for beginners, I really try to caution people away from those really slippery yarns. And I also just, you know, the more I paid attention and, and like I said, read all of those more competent knitters and their notes and their thoughts and stuff and came to understand about like stitch definition and stuff like that things that I cared about I'm really like anybody who reads my blog knows that I'm a total cable addict from a knitting perspective and a wearing perspective I love a cable sweater and I love to knit a cable and so stitch definition is really important to me in yarn I've always been 100% natural fibers like I just I don't like the feel of synthetic fabrics I think you know what a lot of people term soft I think of as just feeling chemical and overprocessed. Um, so my, I, you know, people always ask me about softness and especially on the internet, like I'll talk about some yarn I'm using and people will say, is it soft? And I'm like, that is such a subjective question. I don't even know how to answer it. And my definition <laughs> of it is probably really different than yours. And I don't know. And like where we place value on softness is different from one person to the next. Like I'm, I'm always looking for a yarn that's at a really sweet spot between structure and sheepiness, but also not. You know, I do have some skin sensitivity to it, to the, to the really prickly yarns. Like even Brooklyn Tweed, I love it, and I knit with it. I have two shelter sweaters in my closet that I wear constantly. But if they touch the top of the back of my neck, it will cause irritation there. So I have to, you know, make sure that my shirt comes up higher than my sweater does, you know. But I, I really appreciate the rusticity and the – I always talk on the blog about yarn that remembers that it came from a sheep. 
and so that's really important to me. I, I like things that are just in general. I like things that are very earthy and rustic and authentic. And so, yeah, I definitely gravitate toward the more sort of rustic farm yarns, but with at the same time looking for things that do, you know, that aren't going to irritate my neck, you know? So there's, you always have to kind right. of like find that balance. I'm saying mm-hmm. balance. And actually the yarn that I've been obsessed with recently that <laughs> is balance. <laughs> my second sweater in a row is balance. Yeah. Yeah. I like balance. I've been using it to design, uh, a couple kids things for little woolens and I love the mixed just texture and color of it too. Just really nice yarn. It's just a really that Amanda Cardigan I just finished is just so it feels so good on it. You know, Tennessee is not a lot colder here, generally speaking, than San Francisco. Um, I mean we're definitely like there was snow on the ground this morning, but for the most part it's and we've had some very cold days, but for the most part it's not like a place where it's deep winter for months. So mm-hmm. super woolly sweaters would have a short lifespan, you know, a short amount of usage during any given winter here. And I like really like things that I can wear. I'm going to spend time knitting, you know, I want to be able to mm-hmm. wear them for a larger part of the year. So, yeah. so yeah, that wool cotton blend, I just really love. That's great. I bought a bunch in like a green to make a sweater for, I, I kind of changed my mind on the pattern that I want to use it for, but it's been sitting, I don't know, here for like six months. And yeah. I'm, I keep looking at it. I'm like, this would be the perfect fiber to use for here. Yeah. Well, um, and you're going to have to balance between what, I know. what San Francisco <laughs> needs and what Idaho needs are completely different. I know. It's crazy. I, I kind of like it because now I have a total excuse for the, yeah. the much warmer sweaters that I've been making. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about where you'd like to see both your blog and your shop and just your personal knitting go? The feedback they get from the blog is so amazing. Like people just, I get emails and, and blog comments from people saying, you know, how much they've learned or how much they've been inspired or the fact that they felt brave enough to tackle their first sweater or whatever. Um, and it just means the world to me. Like I just, you know, like I said, I got so much from, from other knitters when I was starting out, so much inspiration and so much information. And, and, you know, I try to do both of those things on the blog and I just want to do more and more of that. You know, I just, I feel like, there have been a lot of things that have happened organically on the blog that turned that have blown me away, like the the whole Fringe and Friends knit along that grew out of just Anna and me wanting to knit a <laughs> a fisherman cardigan, and me saying casually on the blog, like anybody want to knit this sweater with us? And mm-hmm. before I knew it, it was this whole like four month blog event, you know, with hundreds of people knitting these knitting these sweaters and all of mm-hmm. these people weighing in on the blog with all of this incredible information that was beyond what I could you know, newer could share on my own. I, I really want to bring in more voices all the time and more, you know, people more knowledgeable than me to share information that's beyond my abilities. There just are so many interesting people, you know, and so what I've been doing with Art Tools Ourselves on the blog all along, I just want to do more of and just introducing more, you know, more and more new voices and new people into the mix just because, you know, there are, there are limits to what I know. And also, even if I were, you know, the <laughs> even if I were an expert, you know, hearing from one person all the time, you're only getting one perspective. And the beauty of knitting is that there are so many different ways to think about everything. And so I always just love hearing from different people mm-hmm. and, and their their ideas and their techniques and, you know, all of that. So so that's sort of on the blog side and on the for French Supply Company on the mm-hmm. shop. Continuing to find, I've been really trying to just hone this collection of tools and accessories that's, I don't ever want Fringe to be a thing where it's like, you know, every season or every month I'm saying like oh you know here's the new the new cool thing you have to have you know like I really want to sell stuff that I believe has you know utility and longevity and 
So I'm trying to make this sort of like perfect collection of things that I really believe in and believe that you're going to love and use and, and get a lot of use out of. What you were just saying about hearing different voices and, and getting other people's takes on different things. I Something that stuck with me from a episode a few back when I was talking to Jen King of the Sachem Farm, she said that she always was looking for an authority on different subjects, you know, that she would encounter on her end with like the farm. And then she realized one day that yeah. you'll talk to 10 different people and they'll have 10 different things to say yeah. or opinions about it. And they're all right. And so you just have to find what works for you. And I think, I think that's kind of a universal truth in a lot of ways. Yeah. As you're talking about the Amanda sweater and then the balance, I am I had started swatching for a fisherman sweater and then I just, for one thing or another, I just never got past that point. And as I've just followed everyone's finished projects and, and progress over the last few months, yeah. it's totally got me itching to knit a fisherman sweater now. It was really one of the reasons I wanted to learn to knit. Like I've been, I've been sort of on a quest for the, <laughs> for the perfect fisherman sweater since like the 80s. I realized recently, <laughs> mm-hmm. I turned on the TV one day and St. Almost Fire was on. And that's not a movie that I ever, like, I, I know I watched it when it was new. I loved all of those Brat Pack movies, but I, I, I know that was not one of my favorites. And so I know I saw it at the time, but I didn't see it, like, you know, over and over like I did a bunch of the others. But it was on TV and I thought, why didn't I like this one? And so I let it sit there for a minute. And there was this scene with Andy McDowell wearing this incredible fisherman sweater over these, like, skinny pants with big duck boots, you know, and she looked like she still looks completely perfect, you know? And I was like, I wonder if this, mm-hmm. I wonder if this was it. Like, is this one, <laughs> is this the moment that I decided <laughs> I had to have the perfect fisherman sweater? You know, it very well could be my friend DG is like, don't ever tell anyone else that story. And I've just told it to your, your whole listenership, but, um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a thing that I've looked for for a long time. And like, you know, in, in when I was in high school, I would order like a little bean sweaters, you know, and I couldn't wear them because they were so scratchy then. And it's been like a long thing. And then there were a couple different sweaters that I saw in the year or two before I learned to knit that I just thought, you know, they were obviously like, you know, mass market sweaters, but they were sold out or they were beyond my price point or for whatever reason I couldn't have them, you know, and I'd be like, if I knew how to knit, I could make this sweater, you know? And so that was really like one of the driving factors for me learning to knit. It was one of my, one of like my main goal. And so to have made this sweater is really, it's really something. Is it everything that you had hoped it would be? Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's a cardigan, which isn't, you know, it's not the Andy McDowell sweater, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) but um, there will definitely be others in my closet in the long, in the long run. But yeah, it's just a really perfect cardigan. It's just an awesome, like, I mean, from a knitting perspective and from a fashion perspective, it's just this timeless, perfect thing to have in my closet. And I'm so proud of the knitting. And, you know, Anna and I, she sent me her pictures this morning of her finished one. And so it's that whole project started with her and I in a gate area at Midway Airport last summer on our way to Squam, seeing this sweater and wanting it and then both obsessing about it and then saying we need to make that sweater. And so the fact that we're both done now and we have these sweaters is just, we feel very proud of ourselves <laughs> and very, so very cool. happy that we actually did it. So the beauty of knitting. Yep. It's so true because I know that you have a, a pretty loyal following and all of us that are public facing, we have, there's a certain level of transparency, but there's a lot that people don't see. And specifically with knitting, I know that that you are quite transparent and that you do that to 
to really kind of help people on their own journeys. But is there something about your fiber journey folks maybe haven't read on the blog or don't really know about you? I mean, knitting literally changed my life. I mean, I, my whole, my business, my daily activities, I mean, everything now revolves around something that I didn't even know how to do three years ago. You know, so my, my livelihood, my, how I spend my free time. I mean, literally everything changed when I learned to knit. And I think that people mostly know that. Well, you know, I was blogging for a year before I started the shop and I even changed the name of the blog at that point. I mean, you know, the blog existed for a year before anything was called Fringe. Um, And so people, there were people who were reading from the beginning who, you know, watched that whole evolution from this girl just learned to knit and started a blog to she's starting a business and, oh, look, there's a web shop and, oh, now the blog is called Fringe Association and, you know, having been there sort of all along the way. But then, of course, there are people who, you know, there are new people who come to the blog every day and, you know, wouldn't know any of that or wouldn't necessarily even know. What was it called? It was originally called yarnover.me. It was just like a random, I just wanted to start the blog. Like I just wanted to, I didn't know where it would go, but I wanted to just, you know, start sharing what I was doing with the friends who had taught me who were here in, in Nashville and I was still in San Francisco and I was spending inordinate amounts of time like combing through Ravelry late at night looking for the good patterns and the millions of, you know, there are millions and millions of patterns there and trying to find the ones that spoke to me was so time consuming. And I just thought nobody else is, you know, sharing the results of their search in the way that I was looking for. And so why don't I do that? So I just sort of started doing that and, you know, started getting more and more readers all the time and, you know, and then just sort of let it evolve into what it wanted to evolve into. And I knew that ultimately it would probably would change names and all of that as it, as it grew into, you know, sort of came into its own. But yeah, it was originally called yarnover.me. Personally, the way that, the way that knitting has changed my life is really, you know, even though I've always sewn, I, I've known how to sew, you know, my mom taught me to sew when I was a little kid and I, I have sewn close to myself off and on over the years. I did it a lot more in the, in the eighties, like during the Molly Ringwald era, you know, where we were all sort of like deconstructing things and putting them back together. I haven't done as much sewing since then, but I think knitting really brought me back in touch with that and just this full notion of wanting to be the master of my closet and really trying to not have like made in made in third world factory clothes in my closet has been you know something I didn't see coming when I just wanted to learn how to knit. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how your perspective changes when you start doing something like knitting. Like a lot, I think only knitters could really understand (laughs) and understand that, or at least that's what it feels like because everyone else is like, what, why? Like, and why why the sudden change? Like, Ashley, come on. (laughs) Or like, why would you spend four months knitting a sweater when you could just go to the store and buy it? But the fact is, if I could find that sweater in a store, I would have bought it years ago, but. I know. I often get the question from non-knitters, so how long does it take you to knit a sweater? Or how many hours? Because they're quantifying it based on the time that you spend on it, not really the end product because they don't have the appreciation necessarily for the time spent. What are some of the yarns and designers that you're excited about this year? I am increasingly interested as you know in small batch yarns um knowing the origin of the yarn i mean it's really not a quest it's just a it's just more about wanting to know where things came from from start to finish and so if i don't want to buy a sweater that was made in a factory in china i also don't want to knit one from yarn that was made in a factory in china and so i want to know as much as possible about where the 
where the wool came from, or at least that it's, I don't know, like, I mean, I'm not even that obsessive about it. I mean, if it's like, you know, quince yarns that are hundred percent American wool, I, that's, that's a good enough for me. You know, like I'm happy mm-hmm. to know that I'm happy to know that it's, mm-hmm. you know, it came from American sheep farmers from all over and that, that, that wool got blended together into wool that feels lovely and is lovely to knit with and lovely to wear. So it's not like I really need to know exactly what farm any given <laughs> yarn, you know, what exactly what sheep um, the yarn came off the backs of. But I, when mm-hmm. the, when it is possible to know that, I love it. I get a special thrill from it. You know, I just got my mm-hmm. whole and son's wool um, yesterday after having waited for a year for that yarn. And, you know, I mean, there were literally sheep I follow on Instagram, which I think is so mm-hmm. ridiculous, you know. But, like, <laughs> the fact that I've seen photos of these sheep, I see them going in and out of the fields and the pens, you know, and... And I know, you know, who the farmers are and, and that they decided that they wanted to, to put this fleece toward, toward a single farm yarn. And I just think that's really special and I want to take part in it. So that excites me. You know, I just always want to knit with new stuff. And so, you know, with wools that are new to me or, or sheep breeds that are new to me. And I, you know, I've only been doing this for three years and I can only knit so many, you know, apart from the two hour cow phase you only get to knit with so many yarns in a given year, you know, you can only knit so many things. And so mm-hmm. I try to keep it mixed up. Like I try to not you know, be like, I'm on my second balance sweater. It'd be really easy to knit another one because I really like this wool a lot, but I'm, you know, always telling myself like knit, knit with something that you haven't knitted with before. So yeah, trying to always keep it mixed up and trying new stuff. And same thing with designers. Like I, there, there are designers who I just gravitate toward, who I just think do stuff that is, I feel like they're almost designing with me in mind. Um, mm-hmm. I know they're not, but you know, when you see something and you're like, Oh my God, that's so me, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it'd be really easy to, to knit the same people's patterns all the time. But the fact is the best way to learn, like I tell people this all the time, absolute best way to learn and advance your skills is to knit from the patterns of really clever, detailed designers. And it's just like we were saying before, everybody has a different idea about how to do stuff. And so if you're knitting from different people's patterns all the time, you're learning completely different ideas and techniques than you would if you knit from the same person's patterns all the time, even if those patterns are completely brilliant, you're going to have a more narrow experience of what knitting can be than if you mix it up. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to always like get myself to, you know, not knit from the same designers all the time, or at least like I read patterns obsessively. You know, I have read, you know, <laughs> hundreds more patterns than I have actually knitted for that exact reason. Cause I want to see how, how different people do different things, you know, and just little, little details and patterns that you think, you know, you, you might even think like, why on earth would they do that? And then if you stop and think about it, you go, oh, that's really smart. I haven't mm-hmm. seen that before. And so I think the more that you can read and the more that you can knit and the more that you sort of spread it around, as long as you're choosing from um, reliable sources and patterns that are, you know, that have been tech edited and tested and that you that are from sources that, you know, are going to put out a quality pattern, um, that's not going to be a frustrating experience, but an actual learning experience. I think the more you can mix it up, the better. For this week's Man on the Street, I asked a handful of fiber enthusiasts to answer the following question. Share a little bit about your stash and the goals you have for it this year. Here's what they had to say. Hi, this is Maria from Asheville, North Carolina. You can find me on Instagram at ninja.chickens. My stash. Well, um, it's funny that you asked because I was just looking in my closet at the mountain of fiber that is um, blocking my ability to put my clothes away. My yarn 
can fit into a small basket. Um, and my fabric can fit into two medium-sized Tupperware. But my fiber stash has kind of gotten out of hand. It's starting to grow legs and work its way out of the closet. So I guess this year I really need to work on that. Um, I was just washing one of my fleece to try and get it ready to spin up. And I'm hoping that this year I can stop my urge to buy lots of new fleece and start working on the stuff I have in the closet and spin that up and um, get that out the door so that I only have one shelf space for my fleece. That would be a, a good goal this year. Hi there, this is Andrea from East Lansing, Michigan. You can find me on Instagram and Ravelry as Drea Renee Nick. My stash is comprised mostly of yarn and needles, and I have quite a bit over the years. I think we all have our personal evolution with our stash as we learn more, and you start off with some cheaper stuff, and then you get a taste for the good stuff, and it's hard to go back. So my goals for my stash this year, actually, I totally reorganized everything, got everything out in the open, saw how much I had. And so my first goal is to share the love and teach others to knit and bring more people into our awesome community. So I have started inviting people over, teaching them to knit for free and giving them the needles and the yarn to get started. And so I just did that first class on Saturday. It was a great turnout. It was so much fun. And I love that the stuff that I'm not really going to use anymore is getting used. It also helped me to look at the rest of my stash. You know, all those goodies that you keep tucked away because maybe it was pricier or for one reason or another, we covet it. And I'm really trying to look at it and knit with reckless abandon. I am going to use it up because there is no time like today to just get in there and enjoy it. Hi, this is Jennifer calling from Asheville, North Carolina. You can find me on Instagram at jkknits. That's J-A-Y-K-A-Y underscore knits. Right now, my stash consists of mostly sweaters, quantities of wool or wool blends, along with some very special skeins of sock yarn and lace weight yarn. This year, I plan to use as much of my stash as possible on knitting sweaters and socks, not only to use what I already have, but because in the future, I'd like to concentrate more on purchasing and knitting with more local and organic wool, which is all around me here in Western North Carolina, so I don't feel like I'll have a problem doing that. I was first introduced to our next guest via Instagram through a friend nearly two years ago, and I remember being amazed by her thoughtfulness in what she made for herself and her family, as well as for a community she was building in Australia, the craft sessions. Felicia has been on an incredible journey, one that has led her to some amazing discoveries and mindful making. You can find her at thecraftsessions.com and on Instagram at thecraftsessions. And with that, here's Felicia. I'd love to hear a little bit about your fiber journey and how you got started knitting uh, and kind of how it led to where you are now. For me, knitting was something that I picked up when I was in my late 20s. I was 29 and one of my oldest friends was turning 30. And I was living in England at the time. I'm Australian, um, obviously. And uh, I wanted to make her something special. And I couldn't think of how to do that because um, I'd grown up learning how to sew. My mum was a sewing teacher. And so I was 
I decided to learn to knit. I made a garter stitch scarf when I was a kid and I figured it couldn't be too hard. So I um, went to our local store. The only thing it sold was yarn and bought some, um, you know, it didn't have any sewing supplies and bought some four-ply alpaca and some four-mil needles and knitted this Rowan lace shawl, which was a crazy thing to start with. But I learned so much. I ripped it out so many times, but learned a lot about how to... Well, how to rip things out really is what I learned. Yeah, so, and then I loved it. I totally loved it and just, I really just got right into it. And for a few years, because I was in England, that was mainly Rowan yarns and Rowan patterns. But I think it was 2007, so maybe three years after I started knitting, Ravelry appeared and that obviously changed everything. How has it led to where you're at today? I guess what happened was, was that I had a pile of little kids in a couple of years. So um, I, we moved back from England, sorry, my partner's English. So we moved from England to Australia when I was pregnant with my first kid and we had him here and I was knitting a bit, not as crazily as I do these days, but I was knitting a little bit and we had three kids in four and a half years and I really found that knitting and sewing and a little bit of quilting that I did really helped with early parenting you know it's such a full-on thing they um, said with total love but they really want to own your headspace they want to have your attention and I just found that three kids in four and a half years I was kind of I really wanted something that was just mine and also something that I could do while I was parenting, I didn't go back to work. I always thought I would go back to work after I had them, but it just then was never the time. My partner, uh, he had quite a full-on job and travelled a lot for work when they were very little. And so I guess I just, I really threw myself into it. And then what happened was over the years, I just had more and more people coming up to me saying, things like you know they would see me making because I'd be making a kinder function or I'd be making in the park I'd be knitting something in the park while the kids were playing and I had people saying things like oh I wish I could or you're so talented or stuff that I was listening to just thinking you know that's that's not what I believe I don't believe that you need talent to knit a jumper I believe that with a bit of practice anybody can do it and so after a couple of years of you know, making quite full on for myself or, I guess, a large amount of things for myself were really, I really wanted to try and pull something together that would mean that other people could access the kind of teaching that I wanted to encourage, which was teaching that was really generous and open and not so old school. You know, when I was taught to do things, there was a right way to do things and there was a wrong way to do things. You know, you do it this way. And I I don't believe that. I don't believe that you need to get your technique perfect in order to um, really make something beautiful. I mean, I think that you can make something beautiful even when you're beginning and then your technique improves over time. And so I wanted to see whether we could pull together something in Australia like what they had, like what you guys have in America. You've got some amazing craft events whereby the community comes together and the teachers are you know, incredibly encouraging and open with their knowledge. And so I guess I initially it was looking overseas and seeing what was available and just really wanting to have that accessible to more people here. What was the breadth of knowledge that you wanted to share? So um, I guess 
I grew up sewing. My mum was a sewing teacher and she also ran a quilting shop for 15 years. And so to me, I've been doing that since I was really young. And I, you know, when you're talking to people about knitting or sewing, often what they're lacking is the belief that they're able to do it. So I really wanted to create a space where the teachers gave people that, you know, gave them the belief that, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't rocket science. It's not, it's not a tricky thing it does require some practice and you build on your skills one by one and I guess that's what I wanted to do was to have a place whereby we had different levels of different types of I guess you'd call them domestic traditional domestic handcraft so things that women would traditionally have done at home that they could now that we would bring them together it wouldn't just be a knitting event so we cover weaving we cover screen printing sometimes we cover uh, knitting, lots of different knitting classes. Mm. We cover crochet, quilting, uh, sewing clothes, um, needlework, so embroidery. They're kind of the main topics. We will do some topics that are kind of on the edge of that, but most of what we want to make sure we specialise in is, I guess, the thing that most of us do. You know, I come from a big community in Melbourne where people are making things with their hands, and for the most part, the community that I'm part of and making things um, in those kinds of areas. So, yeah, it was really important to me that we focus on domestic handcraft and mainly because I felt like you could go to a knitting shop and do a knitting class. But, for example, until very recently, there was nobody offering a steaking class. You know, it was how to knit um, and you could go to a sewing shop and you could do a sewing class, but there was nobody teaching, I guess, the kinds of things that I wanted to, well, not that I wanted to learn because I learned a lot of them when I was little, but that I wanted people to be able to understand. So one of the things that I'm trying to put on at this year's event, because I'm working on the new classes at the moment, is I really want to do a kid's wardrobe class whereby you're learning how to sew a kid's wardrobe in a day because often the kids sewing that I do is really simplified it's not complicated you know you can throw a pair of pants together in an hour and I want to show people how to do that I don't necessarily want to do uh, high fashion you know couture kind of dressmaking I want to do practical everyday accessible stuff that most people would be able to do if they had a good teacher which um, all of my teachers are amazing so I'm very lucky I think that that's really cool, teaching the wardrobe approach, because that's something that I really had hoped I'd have more time to do uh, for my son, and I, I did do a little bit here and there, but someday I hope to make more of his clothes, because you're right, they don't have to be super complicated, and uh, there's a lot you can kind of do to just make them fun and kind of funky. Somebody said recently... I was really um, prolific. They commented on Instagram that I was really pro prolific. I think it was um, Sophie, one of my teachers. And what's interesting to me about that is that she makes these beautiful, incredibly detailed, um, her, her Instagram username is Ada Sprague, and she makes these beautiful, really detailed, really complicated garments that are stunning, so stunning. But that's not the kind of sewing I do. For the most part, I make... Like yesterday, I made a Wixton tank, you know, it's just straight seams and, you know, it came together in a few hours. I don't, 
with three little kids and the other things that we have going on in our life, I don't have time or the, I guess it's more the headspace. I don't have the headspace for things that are complicated at this stage. So although my knitting might be complicated because that's transportable and portable, my sewing has to be really simple. And mm-hmm. kids' garments, they're often, you know, really easy to throw together mm-hmm. if you have a good teacher. I think that's great for small spaces too. That's something that I've struggled with being in San Francisco. I, I've i gotten my sewing machine out a few times and gone to work on something and then, you know, I don't can't finish it in one setting. So then I have to pack it all up and put it away. And if I choose more simple things, I can kind of accomplish it and feel feel happy that I was able to complete something. So uh, instead of stashing it away and not touching it for until it's too small the next time. But I also think that kids don't like complicated clothes, you know. They really like just um, pull on with lots of movement so they don't want stiff, skinny jeans, you know. Mm-hmm. They want things that they can hoon about in on their bikes and climb trees in. And, and so I don't, you know, um, I make pretty frocks. I make them something for their birthday each year and something for Christmas each year, but... The majority of what I make is really, you know, clothes that I know are going to get trashed, Mm -hmm. totally trashed. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking back to when I first had my son and just some of the silly things I bought. And now I see like what I choose to dress them in. and, And it's funny how, especially I think probably with your first kid, you learn pretty quickly that you, like you mentioned, the skinny jeans and the more fashionable clothes are not the most uh, comfortable for them or the easiest even for the parent, you know, change diapers. and. Yeah, that's one of the things that we want to teach. We also this year are going to teach a, um, a, a, a beautiful woman's frock. So we do teach more complicated um things within the classes but I want to I guess cater for all levels so that if you are a knitter you can dabble in sewing and if you're a a quilter you can dabble in weaving and I just want to I guess bring all those things together for a weekend but do you know what the thing that I haven't said about the craft sessions which is the most important thing is it's actually not about the classes it's about the community and it's about bringing everybody together because There wasn't really a space to do that in Australia until we tried to create this thing. You know, you could go to a craft group where you knew the people, but you there was nowhere in a more general sense where you could meet new crafters. And I found that a lot of people that come don't have a big community of people around them that are making. So they're making things in isolation. And um, the craft sessions has spawned so many just gorgeous friendships that I can see on Instagram. You know, I know most of their uh, usernames and I can see who's become friends and I really love that part of it that it's about bringing people together to connect about a shared passion which is Mm -hmm. making things with your hands. I love that you know obviously that's where my viewpoint kind of comes around what I'm doing so I think what you're doing is really amazing Uh, and that was actually one of the next questions I was going to ask was what has the response been from the community around you uh, and even I'm guessing abroad I know some people have traveled to the craft sessions it was unexpected you know it's a really big deal for me to put something out there creatively I have a science background and I studied science at uni and when I was pregnant with my first kid I did a master's in environmental economics so 
I didn't really see myself, I guess, as creative. I saw myself as somebody that made things. And so <laughs> it kind of felt like a really big deal to put out this event. I wasn't big on social media. I'd never had a blog before. I'd never written before. I didn't have a Facebook account. So when I started it, I had to join Facebook and I got this lady to show me how to use it for an hour because I didn't understand, you know, what events were and how to, etc. So that was quite a learning curve. I also had to figure out how to connect with all these people that, you know, I was in a part of a community in Ravelry, but, you know, I was trying to create something outside of just knitting. And I've been incredibly blessed, I think, with the response because it's grown quite organically. It's not a big money spinner, so we don't have it's it's a, a passion project for me, I guess. So mm-hmm. I have been amazed because we don't advertise just how successful it's been. So we um, we nearly doubled our numbers in the second year, and I think we'll hit the capacity of the venue this third year. So I feel incredibly lucky that people have loved it, and also the feedback that we've got. This is the other thing that I find really exciting from the actual weekend has always been so incredibly supportive. So people seem to leave and take the feeling that they have over the course of the weekend back into their lives. And, you know, then they send me these gorgeous emails and stuff. And anyway, it's it's really exciting to me to know that they've got what I wanted them to get out of it, which is coming away feeling inspired and encouraged and confident about and, and taking that home with them. Mm-hmm. You were just talking about how people have sent you emails and thanking you. And that's something that I hadn't experienced in regard to fiber until recently. And it's one of those things that kind of caught me off guard. I was talking to someone yesterday about that. I I guess when I launched the podcast and even just certain blog posts that I've written, I wasn't expecting a lot of feedback that was like an email form, I guess, you know, Instagram is really easy because you can just make a comment and it's pretty instantaneous. It doesn't take a lot of effort, but for someone to take time to write an email, uh, I always find, (laughs) I felt a lot of gratitude and also a little bit of guilt. The fact that those that have touched me over the years and had some kind of impact on me, uh, or done something that I've been really thankful for that I didn't take the time to write them an email, uh, Email seems to be one of those things that always gets kind of pushed to the end of the day and and you never quite get through. But, And I've said this before in many other podcasts, but I'm always just kind of blown away by the people, you know, not only the knitting community, but I guess the fiber community as a whole. And I'm sure that there's many other people outside of our little community that are the same way, but just a sense of gratitude from them and then me for them for sharing their stories and and just their experiences that's been the biggest the biggest what would I say the biggest thrill for me throughout this whole thing was the blog I initially started it just to market the event I felt that I was running this craft event and I was going to write a few posts about the teachers and what inspired them and whatnot and then one day I had somebody, a friend come over and she wanted to relearn how to knit. She was about to go on holiday and she was talking about all the things that she was 
afraid of when she was knitting. She was afraid of the stitches dropping off. She was afraid of getting it wrong. She was afraid of... And so I wrote this post about it, just saying that, you know, there's... If, if you learn to knit and you learn to understand the structure of your knitting, then you shouldn't be knitting with fear. Knitting should be a meditative experience rather than a, oh, my God, this is going to go wrong kind of experience. And I wrote this post. And then after that, I just started writing. And I've never written before. And the, the response to some of the blog posts that I've written and some of the things that I've been talking about, which is a lot of the head stuff around how we make and why we make and what happens when we get stuck and you know some of the things that we fight with in our own heads about perfection and doing things right and our confidence and um, I guess our consumerism like I've been writing that little series called Stash Less lately about looking at how I consume as part of my making and the response to the blog has been just such a thrill for me because I love ideas and the comments that people leave give me so many more ideas like different ways of thinking about the stuff that I'm already thinking about you know they I really I love that aspect of it and I love the community that's come out of the blog not just the event but the blog has been amazing mm-hmm. and Instagram to a lesser degree because it's shorter form I guess right so you just brought up stash lists, which is one of the things that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about I I really enjoyed kind of seeing your progress through that project on Instagram and your blog, what kind of inspired you to start this stashless project? We went away this year uh, camping for six months, and um, that was a pretty big deal for us as a family. And when we and and as part of that, we were traveling with a four wheel drive, so just a Toyota Land Cruiser, and we took our tent. So we went camping with a you know, some kind of motorhome or a camper van or anything. We just had three kids and us in a little car. It had a top box on. I mean, it's not a little car, but it's not a massive car. And um, with all our camping gear. And so I had a box of wool with me, but which my partner will tell you was massive, but it wasn't. And I had to work out of that box. Uh, there weren't that many stores along the way, depending on where we were. And so I really had to work with what I had and think rather than thinking about making from the perspective of I really want to make that project and now I'm going to find materials I had to look at it from the opposite perspective which was I have these materials what do I want to make and often it was something that the kids needed because they as they do lose cardigans and jumpers along the way so I was making things for them as we went but when I got back and I walked back into my sewing room I just had this overwhelming sense of, I guess it was a sense that, I'm a, I guess it was overwhelm that there was all this stuff there that I should be using, that I should be making things with. And, you know, each one of those purchases had a project in mind when I purchased it. And now it was sitting there unmade because something else had gotten in the way or I'd made something else. And I think that being away, walking away gave me real perspective on what it was that I did have. And what I've discovered, I've, sorry, stashless is not saying that I think that you shouldn't have a stash. I believe in a stash. I think that having things on hand is incredibly inspiring creatively. But I think that having too much can overwhelm you and make you not feel so good. It's also, you know, in the rest of our lives, 
we try to be quite conscious consumers. You know, we think about what we eat, we grow our own veggies, we have chickens, we think about the packaging that we have and we make lots of other choices in our life about how to be conscious about our consumerism. And I really felt when I got back that I hadn't been doing that with my craft. I hadn't been doing that in terms of what I was making and also what I was buying. So I really wanted to have a look at that. So I set some guidelines that I didn't want to be too onerous. So I wanted to be conscious, but I didn't want it to be a deprivation thing. It was about thinking about what I had, why I had it, and what choices I could make differently in the future. So what I have agreed with myself is that I can spend about $50 a month and that that $50 needs to be spent for the most part on supplementing things that I already have. So if I make a quilt and I need a binding, then I can buy the binding if I don't have something. Or if I make a dress and I don't have a zip, I can buy the zip. And so far, I've spent $263, I think, and I'm only three months in. So I'm a little bit over budget. <laughs> but So I realized that I have enough materials here, beautiful materials, to probably make for the next two years. And that if I am more conscious about what not getting lost in the internet, in Pinterest, in the greatest, latest thing that comes on Ravelry... If I think about actually what we need, then I end up making things that are more valuable to me in terms of I'll wear them more often. So looking at my wardrobe and looking at actually what I need rather than, oh, so-and-so's brought out this gorgeous dress pattern, I'd love to make it. Actually looking at what do I have, what do I need? So last night I made a top to go. We're going out tonight for New Year's Eve and I made a top to go out for New Year's Eve because I didn't have anything that was kind of suitable lots of my clothes have got a bit old and I keep making day-to-day clothes when actually what I need is a few nicer things and so by being more conscious and looking at what I have then I'm finding I'm making more uh, better decisions and really enjoying the process more taking more time I guess to enjoy what I'm making rather than making it such a manic pace as you're talking, I'm just kind of looking outside and contemplating about the things that you're saying. And I love your approach to what you're making has a purpose. And, you know, as makers and and, and knowing that we have the ability to make these things that we're seeing uh, on Instagram or Pinterest or even Ravelry, you get excited and, and sometimes that excitement overwhelms you and you just kind of jump on something by yarn, you know, you're going to start this project. It gives me a lot of good things to think about kind of as I move forward and I think probably for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that we are trying to live a conscious life. You know, we took time out of my partner's um, career this year to go away because we wanted to spend time with our kids. You know, we grow our veggies because we want to well as many as we can because we want to be conscious about where our food comes from and I think that there's a tendency because we're hand making to think that that's being conscious and I'm just not so sure anymore in my case that I was being conscious so there was this quote that I read on Jared Flood's blog the other day where he was talking about how hand making a garment is more in tune with slow fashion than fast fashion when you're buying something and I just started feeling really uncomfortable as I'm reading it because I had this I this feeling that for me actually what I was doing the amount that I was making and 
the consciousness that I was doing it with was actually more akin to fast fashion and that I was just going with my whims rather than looking at consciously creating what I needed. And that's not to say that there shouldn't be projects with joy. So I think that following your joy and your inspiration a bit with what you have on hand rather than trying to make everything that you that you had ideas for originally might be a better way to go. You know, using it for a different project when the inspiration strikes is, you know, a way of maintaining your inspiration while using what you have on hand. I think that if we make it too hard, then it sucks the joy out of creating, which is why I wanted to be able to spend a little bit. So one thing I said about my yarn stash was that this year I was able to pick one jumper. So one project, one adult project where I actually just bought the wool for. So that, you know, I feel like there can be, because actually I don't need more than one jumper. I probably Mm -hmm. don't even need a jumper. I have quite a few sweaters I've been knitting for (laughs) 10 years. You know, just being more conscious about it, I think, was what came out of our trip away. Mm -hmm. I realized that just even in the last month, maybe my thought process around what I need has changed. So I started this one sweater and and I love it and I am going to continue to knit it, but I think it'll move down in the priority list because it's definitely more of a fashion sweater than it is like a functional one. And although I love it, I really the only time I'll wear sweaters get the most out of sweaters is when we are up in Idaho and those are ones that need to be easily taken on and off and you don't have to be too delicate with it you know you can be a little rough on it and you're not gonna worry too much if you get a little dirt on it yeah so we um because we were camping we were living out of quite a small bag so we only had you know a couple of tops with us and a couple of jumpers and what you realize is that um you can live with very little And actually, we have an abundance in our lives of things. I guess I just want to be more thoughtful. You know, when I started making and started knitting, I realized when I look back at all the sweaters that I've made, I've probably made myself 20 in the last 10 years, I guess. Maybe not even, maybe 15, but I don't need 15 sweaters. And a lot of them I don't wear. So because they don't fit quite right or I was learning and so, you know, I've, um, you know, they're a bit long or a bit shorter, a bit something. And actually, I shouldn't leave them there. I should be looking at what I have, what I need, and seeing whether or not I can reuse them, like I would do in other aspects of my life, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember seeing a photo of that one sweater that you going to undo and reuse the yarn for something else. And I remember seeing some of the people's comments like, oh, no, don't do not do it. And I think people get hung up on on the time and the energy and, and that went into that. I mean, because, it, you know, it's not a quick thing to knit a sweater. And yeah, I don't know. I admire your uh, dedication to reuse that for something else uh, that, that you would wear. Because I don't know if I would. I'm still kind of new to sweater knitting, only having knit a few, but... I it stresses me out like when I think when I saw it I was like oh gosh I can't even imagine undoing like one of the ones I just did but I imagine in 10 years I might feel differently yeah well that one had sat there for five years Mm -hmm. five years since I finished it and I wouldn't want it and because 
you know, I, I showed on the blog, actually the, the picture on Instagram looks quite pretty, but the pictures that I showed on the blog actually show just how misshapen it was and it didn't suit me and it's not my style and I knit it because I really liked the pattern at the time. It was way back at the start of Ravelry coming out with all these amazing patterns. And I think that there's something that um, I might have been Elizabeth Zimmerman, who's, you know, an amazing woman with many a good quote, but she said something along the lines of, you know, well, you should always rip because you like knitting. If you like knitting, then it's actually no big deal to knit something again. Yeah. And if it's sitting there unused, I think on the blog, I called it a monument to learning. It's a monument. It's sitting there as a monument to the mistakes that I've made and the mistakes that I've learned and that's not particularly useful so I guess ripping it out you need wine wine is the key beer (laughs) rip it fast maybe with a friend when you look back at your creative journey whether it's as a knitter or a sewer who do you think have been some of the more influential people in your journey so there's two people probably one was my mum who she um Although we're very different crafters, she and I make things very differently. She, when I was a little kid, she would encourage us to draw whatever it was that we wanted to wear and she would then help us make it. So, you know, I could draw, I drew this primary coloured block patchwork dress that was red and yellow and blue in the primary colours and made it. This was back in the 80s, I grew up in the 80s. And... She helped me take it from a drawing and make it into something that fit me beautifully. And I guess she really gave me the confidence to understand that you do learn just by trying things. There's no way of getting better at craft other than to just start making. And also that you can make really beautiful things with really simple techniques. You know, the Wickstand tank that I made last night is just straight seams. There's nothing more to it. You need to be really good at getting a a good seam allowance and not going outside of your seam allowance but other than that it's a really simple thing to pull together and so I guess she gave me the confidence that I could learn it and I think that's something that a lot of people that haven't grown up surrounded by people that are making things don't have is the confidence to just know that if you read a tutorial and you practice a few times that you'll be able to get it. Mm-hmm. And the other one was probably, so thanks mum, um, the other one was probably Elizabeth Zimmerman, who in a similar way, you know, she's like, this is, if you can learn to, you know, write a letter or cook a meal or balance your budget, you can learn to knit. And so she was another one also that doesn't believe that there are rules. It's your knitting. You get to decide. Fudging is really a valid part of knitting that you don't need to get the perfect stitch count. And so I'm a massive modifier. I often, sometimes I make up my own patterns for jumpers and things depending on what I'm trying to achieve or what idea I have but often I just take an existing pattern and modify it because you know there's no point in me reinventing the wheel I'm doing that at the moment with a little sweater for a little cardigan for my little girl so it's a top-down v-neck cardigan and I love the pattern that this person's created but I don't like the way they've done the neck shaping so you know, I can hear Elizabeth Zimmerman in my head saying it's your knitting and I just reshape the neck. I feel really lucky to have come across both those people. Obviously, my mum from a very early age, that that changes how you see making, I think. Yeah, for sure. My mom is, she's always been a maker at a very early age. I think, 
I must have been like six. I said I wanted to sew. And so she kind of taught me. And then at a local fabric store, they had like a summer sewing camp. And you basically got to sew three or four pieces to wear. And then they did a little fashion show. And I think I still have those somewhere tucked away. But just thinking back to that, I think that those kind of experiences have a pretty profound impact on how you just feel, like you said, the confidence or freedom to just make. There's not really anything holding you back except for yourself. I really believe that's true. It's just practice. It's not, you know, this whole idea of being talented is something that I react against, I guess, because yes, there is talent in the world, but most of us don't need to be talented to make a sweater. You know, mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. there's amazingly talented knitters and sewers out there, but most of us just want the joy of creating something and you don't need to be talented to do that. You can make something beautiful just by knowing a running stitch or a straight stitch on a machine or knowing how to do stocking yet. You can make a beautiful scarf. You don't need, you know, I, I guess it's a bit of a, a thing for me really because I just hear it so often. I'd love to, but I'm not talented or I'm not creative or I'm not you know, whatever it might be. And I think it really holds people back, this idea that you need to be talented to be able to make. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Over the years, I definitely have heard something like that or another. And it just strikes me as so odd that you wouldn't feel that you think that I have something special that you don't have that could give me the ability to make something and and them not. I think that's one of the, that's a societal thing though. There's this, I think the internet and I think uh, lots of the pretty images and inspiration that we have around us are often incredibly discouraging because what they show is the finished product and they don't show the fact that in order for the person to have made that, they have to have made 10 rubbish things first. 10 things that had mistakes all through them or, you know, they they show something beautiful and people seem to think that you just arrive at that and you can't see the years of practice that somebody's done. You know, you can't see the fact that the reason that I can make a Wickstand tank in an evening is because I learned to sew when I was five, you mm-hmm. know, and I've done, I've practiced mm-hmm. since then. It's not that I'm talented. I've just done a lot of sewing, you know, so... For me, I, I really want to be saying as part of the craft sessions and as part of the blog, hey, this is practice. If you're interested, have a go, have a crack. One of the other things that I wanted to ask you about is uh, what kind of projects are you working on right now? So I'm knitting. I'm doing everything that I'm making at the moment is recycled, which means that my stash isn't actually going down, which is a <laughs> bit of a shame. But um, uh, I'm making a little cardigan for my girl my middle girl what I found was when I was looking at my stash and figuring out what I had I found that I had five balls of whole balls of silver five ply they're all kind of similar they're all kind of some kind of wool content often some alpaca content but they're all a very similar shade because I love that shade and but they're all different so I was trying to figure out how to combine them into a cardigan And then I was reading an Elizabeth Zimmerman book the other day and she saw a Norwegian sweater in that book. And so I've decided that the the changes between each different color of silver, I'm going to put in some kind of Norwegian pattern in a blue, which I also had in my stash. 
in a blue across the change to kind of disguise the change from one silver to another. I guess it's like a deconstructed Norwegian sweater. It's a bit, it could be totally wacky and turn out looking crazy or it could be genius who knows yet <laughs> I'm also I undid a Brooklyn Tweed sweater that I'd made years ago called the stranger cardigan which I totally loved but I got the sizing wrong this was back when I knew less about how to size things and so I've pulled that apart and I'm now making keel by Bristol Ivy which I totally love Bristol Ivy is amazing she's just so talented huh now I'm using the talented word but she is she's her patterns are so imaginative in terms of the construction of them. So I'm making that, which I'm really enjoying. And then I made a Wickstand tank, I guess, that was last night, out of a dress that I'd already made that didn't fit very well, so I hacked that up last night. And then I'm also making a quilt. I'm making lots of things. I often, I'm definitely not monogamous. I have projects all around the house and I just pick one up here and there whenever I walk past. And so I'm making a quilt, which is a queen size or king size you guys have got different sizing to us but 220 by 220 I guess so um, a big quilt and it's using fabrics that I've had in my stash for years that I totally adore and because I totally adore them I didn't want to use them and which is another crazy head thing you know that if I use them I couldn't use them for something else so having the stash less project going on just means that I have to use them because I can't go out and buy something new so I'm really excited about that because it's forced me into making something I've wanted to make for years which is a queen size quilt for our bed and yeah so they're kind of the main things I'm working on at the moment what you were just saying about they were your favorite fabrics so you didn't use them I, I find that all the time like I'll hold on to the silliest things because I love them so much and I have to find the perfect use for them but sometimes I'll get a wild hair and I'll just be like, I'm, I'm just going to use that for this. And then I kind of forget that it was so special. But I mean, I love the end product, but it kind of puts it in perspective, I guess, of why was I holding on to that particular one? <laughs> you know, the whole idea of perfection is such a, a trap, really, because it means that, you know, I have a, a pretty pile sitting in my you know I don't have the most massive stash in the world it's not like I have cupboards and cupboards full of stuff I have a bookcase that's got my fabric on it but the things that I really love I don't use and if I'm not using them yes they can be inspiring just sitting there but they often end up feeling like like they're kind of a bit of a weight like I really should use that it's wrong of me not to have used it you know and then to go and buy something else so mm-hmm. using some of them is actually incredibly fun you were talking about how you took this long camping trip and how that was quite the adventure for your family. And, you know, you're getting ready for the next craft sessions and I'm sure it's going to be really exciting. Uh, are there any other things on the horizon for you? Uh, things that you're excited about as a maker or things that maybe you're excited to participate in? A couple of things. One, we just figured out the, that we've probably, due to the ages of our kids, we've got two more years in the next 10 years where we can pull them out of school and go camping again so we figured out that we can go in 2017 and 2020 which is pretty exciting to know that we can do that from a making perspective oh and also from the craft sessions there's some other things that we're talking about doing at the moment where I'm reassessing it's turned out differently to what I originally planned I guess I I didn't realize that I would find so many like-minded people I hoped that I would, but I wasn't sure. And so 
I guess we're reassessing at the moment what the craft sessions should look like in time, you know, um, what else we could do that would, you know, there's no way of making it cheaper than it is for the weekend. Um, if I could make it more accessible, I, I would, but it's not possible. So how else can we create events that still maintain, that aren't just workshops because that's not what we do. We, we want to really, you know, look at everything that we do from the angle of community as well as um, the sharing of knowledge. And so what kinds of events or other um, ways could we share both of those things um, in a different format? So we're talking about that at the moment quite a lot. So hopefully we can figure out some exciting things for the next year. But it's all dependent on time, of course, that having a family mean that I have, I've still got um, a little girl at home and she goes to kinder now. This year is going to be the first time she's going two days a week. So that will give me a little bit more time. But normally I fit in organizing this stuff and making in all the gaps, which means that I'm a bit, a bit pushed for time. Last week's giveaway is Dawn and Callie. You've won a skein of both Moke yarns, Elena and Stella. Congratulations! This week we're giving away a $25 gift certificate to our first guest shop, Fringe Supply Company. Karen has put together such a beautiful collection of tools and supplies that I can only imagine it will be hard to pick just what to get. To enter this giveaway, leave a comment on today's episode's blog post at wolfful.com. Next week, we'll be starting our February Woolful Knit Along, the Little Woolen's Prairie Grass Hat. You can find kits that include both the Knit Along pattern and Cormo yarn at woolfulmercantile.com, or you are always welcome to use your own favorite yarn and grab the pattern on Ravelry. You can find more information on this Knit Along in our Woolful Ravelry group. I wanted to make sure and thank today's sponsor again, StashBot. I just recently started using this amazing app to help make my stash more efficient. And although you can never really have too much yarn, I imagine the money I'll save on those extra skeins from one project will go towards yarn for another project. Make sure to visit knitbot.com dashbot. The biggest of thanks to everyone involved in this week's episode. Hannah, Karen, Maria, Andrea, Jennifer, and Felicia. I hope you'll join me each week as we talk and learn from more fascinating fiber folk. For podcast notes and transcription, visit woeful.com. This week, I'll be catching up on all the transcriptions for those who have been so patiently waiting for them. If you're interested in being a part of this podcast, including our Man on the Street segment, shoot me an email at hello at Have a wonderful week.